Welcome back to Across the Movie Aisle, presented by Bulwark Plus. I am your host, Sonny Bunch, culture editor of The Bulwark. I'm joined, as always, by Alyssa Rosenberg of The Washington Post and Peter Suderman of Reason Magazine. Alyssa, Peter, how are you today? I'm swell. I am happy to be talking about movies with friends. Just wanted to quickly remind folks about the ATMA Live show. That's Across the Movie Aisle Live on Tuesday, May 16th at 7.30 p.m., at the Crystal City Alamo Draft House, uh, we're hosting a screening of the 1983 classic War Games, and then we're taping a live show. Super gratified by the response so far. Theater's like three quarters sold out. That's I thought it would take a little bit longer to get to that point. Pretty much every seat that's available uh, is in the first two rows, and you're probably sitting there thinking, well, I don't want to sit that close to the screen. But A, no bad seats at the draft house. Trust me, I've sat in those seats plenty of times over the years. They're they're fine. Um, and they also, actually adjust the recline so you can recline further in the closer seats so that you get a better angle on the screen. Look at that. And also, it just means you're going to be closer to Peter and Alyssa and me while we tape the show. I mean, those are actually the best seats in the house. If you think about it, you got all these suckers out there sitting way in the back. You want to be right up front. With us. So get your tickets now because uh, it looks like we're headed towards a sellout, I guess. You definitely don't want to miss uh, the movie or post movie drinks with us. It's going to be fun. I assume Peter's bringing buckets of cocktails to pour into people's mouths, like, uh, you know, at a Cabo. Cocktails bar. don't come in buckets, Sonny. They come in little what? tiny what? martini glasses. What about like a like one of the aged barrels, the barrels that you put it in? You can open up the tab and just put it directly into people's mouths. That works. That All right. On with the show. On to controversies and controversies. Netflix is at long last killing their DVD by mail service. What? They still rent DVDs? What is this, 2005? I can hear you saying it to yourself in your car and you think you're very funny. And you know what? That's fair. But lots of people still use the service, and it's worth thinking about why. One reason for the continued loyalty to Netflix's DVD operation, choice. Thanks to the first sale doctrine, Netflix had access to everything ever released on DVD. All they had to do was buy a copy and mail it to people. That's how first sale doctrine works. When you buy a thing, you can do what you want with it. Uh, so HBO exclusives like Westworld and Showtime exclusives like Billions, they would be on the Netflix service as well just once they hit DVD. Um, this is markedly different from the world of streaming rights, where everything is kind of bifurcated to the point of madness, necessitating entire apps like JustWatch.com to figure out where something is showing. Um, and that's if it's showing at all, because uh, for all the promise of a digital future that meant instant access to everything ever made, simple fact of the matter is that lots and lots of stuff is getting left behind. Sometimes that's because of rights questions, right? So, for instance, Kevin Smith's Dogma is streaming legally nowhere. It's, it's zero places that it's streaming legally. It's available for rent nowhere. Um, and it's out of print on physical media. That's because uh, guess who owns the rights to that? One Harvey Weinstein, and nobody really wants to deal with him to get them back. Sometimes it's because there's simply no value in creating a digital transfer of the work in question. Creating a digital transfer of quality is expensive, and recouping that cost one rental at a time or one streaming digital rights package at a time is not always easy to do. Turns out, in a weird way, that VHS was the true golden age of home media. Um, there were fewer DVDs than there were of VHS, there were fewer Blu-rays than there were of DVDs, and fewer streams than previous generations of home video. Look, there was stuff to criticize about Netflix DVD's operation. Peter Labuza broke down some of the ways in which it bent and slash or broke the USPS to get DVDs all over the country in the cheapest and quickest way possible. And like all great tech companies, there's a bottom layer of simple hard labor 
that can't be technologyed away. Um, but it really was the best of times for folks who were just looking to expand their cinematic knowledge. I watched more movies released before I was born during the heyday of Netflix DVD than I have at any other time in my history, including college when I was taking, you know, film history courses. I filled in so many cinematic potholes that otherwise would have destroyed the undercarriage of my ability to understand the language of movies. And to continue with this horribly tortured metaphor, the information superhighway is just an enormous mess right now with off-ramps to nowhere and walled cul-de-sacs, keeping people from the entire breadth of Cinema City. Peter, let's just let's go down the nostalgia route for a second here. Do you remember the last Netflix DVD you got? Oh, man. I So I think it was about 10 years ago. And I don't remember what it was. I do remember that it was only last year that I canceled my DVD subscription. <laughs> yeah. So I, I have, I, I think I still have the last one, like from, from whatever I that still, was. I, no, totally. I still, I have a copy of uh, Rashomon with Netflix's logo stamped on it somewhere in my, my uh, wall of DVDs. I know I, I loved their DVD service and it was a, a big part of my cinematic education. I will uh, I, I was actually a, a slightly late adopter to it because I, I was an early subscriber to a DVD uh, by mail service. But I didn't start with Netflix. I started with Blockbuster back when Blockbuster had a competing service back when Blockbuster still existed because Blockbuster was a couple dollars less. It didn't seem like their selection was obviously worse. And you could also get some physical rentals uh, like if you wanted to drive to a store. This was probably back in 2004, I want to say, is, is when this would have been. And so this was during my, I believe I, I first subscribed during my final year in college, uh, my final couple of semesters in college. And, I, you know, I was a college student. I had very little money. So the biggest reason that I went with Blockbusters just was that it was like a couple dollars a month cheaper. And that was a big deal. But I switched to Netflix pretty quickly as soon as I got a, a straight job, you know, out of college. And um, it was phenomenal, right? Like, I remember like there there were articles about people who were sort of maxing out how many DVDs you could rent per month and to the point where I, my my recollection is and I'd have to go back and look at this again but my recollection is that there were even reports that Netflix might be slowing it down for some people and I was pretty clearly like in the slowed down zone because I was renting like 18 movies a month with which was just about the maximum number you could get with your two or three disc plan and cycling them through and it takes a couple of days in the mail to get back and then to get another one and but it just it meant that I could just watch a huge number of movies and this also was at a time in my life when work was less engaging and like it just required less of me right and i also was i wasn't out and about every single night and so i would just come home and even if i was out right i'd come home at 11 p.m or midnight and i'd just watch a movie or i wouldn't go out at all and i'd watch three movies and i just kind of plowed through the whole canon some of that i had started beforehand you know in high school and in college but netflix made it possible to to do that in a much more completionist way and also without the without the, the sort of the time commitment of getting in a car and going to a video store, which was a big deal because, you know, after college, I moved to Washington, D.C. And while I lived in the burbs in Virginia, where it's which are a little more car friendly, like driving places and going places, you know, getting anywhere was just much more difficult and time consuming than living in a smaller market where you could just, you know, you had a driveway and you could always just kind of drive a, you know, five minutes to the local strip mall and the local video store. So Netflix was just a huge boon to my cinematic education and 
a lot of what we talk about here on this podcast, when I'm like sort of walking through my mind in the film library in my mind, a lot of that came from that period of time, you know, in my in my early 20s when I was just kind of binging Netflix all the time. It's also interesting to think of Netflix DVD as an early version of essentially binge watching a TV show, streaming, streaming a TV show, because if you had it set up properly, you know, you get three discs out at a time you watch one disc of a season send it back while that's in the mail you watch the second disc in the season you send that in the mail the the other one's coming back now you watch the third disc but if you if you if you do it right you get it all done uh, in pretty short order Alyssa, what do you make of this kind of idea that you know the 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 rights issues with streaming versus dvd make it harder to like really just keep track of what is available to watch. And it reduces the amount of overall choice that people have. Yeah, I mean, I've written and talked about this as sort of one aspect of sort of a larger cultural atomization um, that I think Netflix has really facilitated in a lot of ways. You know, not just by, you know, sort of spearheading the streaming revolution, but by pushing the binge watch as opposed to, you know, a sort of more episodic communal experience. But I do think that it is... You know, it's a shame that, like, young cinephiles coming up now will have to work harder to get some of this stuff and that it will be more expensive. I mean, this is not a medium that, you know, can really afford to throw out barriers to entry, right? I mean, you have, you know, something like video gaming, you know, can be fairly expensive for a console and a game itself, but provides a ton of hours of entertainment. And if... You know, the only way to get access to some of this stuff is going to be to, like, buy the Criterion Collection or, you know, watch an adulterated version of it. I think that's kind of a shame in terms of developing a common language, right? I mean, Netflix helped usher in a world where there was so much content that nobody could get all of their arms around it at any given time anyway. And now if the, you know, the disappearance of its DVD service shuts off an arena for people to go back and acquire, like, a former common culture, that's a shame. I don't want to make it sound like I'm approving of this, but I do wonder if this is going to lead to a general kind of boom in, especially amongst younger people, younger cinephiles trying to figure out what is going on in the history of cinema, lead to a boom in piracy. Because, I mean, look, I, the the simple fact of the matter with movie piracy is that 98% of the stuff that's downloaded is either stuff that's in theaters or stuff that was just in theaters. It's It's always the most popular movies out there. But there is a kind of undercurrent of folks who are picking up things that are simply not available to watch online with easy access. I think that some of that is going to happen. But I, I also think that part of the reason that the, the DVD business is going defunct is that online options have effectively replaced a lot of it. Yes, of course, there are now films that you can't stream anywhere. But aside from the Netflix model and the kind of Amazon Prime video models of where you just sort of have access to a big streaming library, there's now this other thing that exists where you can go and pay to rent a movie online. Right. And it's typically four or five or six dollars. Amazon has the service and so does Apple. And there is a huge, huge library of things that are rentable for a one time fee. And that library is almost certainly much larger than the video rental stores that I grew up with. Now, it's obviously going to be smaller than Netflix's DVD library, but it is very, very large and larger than most people in small markets would have had access to in, say, 1995. And it's relatively affordable. I mean, I was paying four or five dollars to rent movies you know, when I was 15 years old. So if you think about inflation, that's basically the same price um, and it works really, really well. 
So there is just less need for individual time limited or sort of one at a time type rentals in a world where Amazon will let you watch maybe not everything, but a huge, huge, huge library of stuff as long as you're willing to pay the four or five bucks. I mean, I also hope that we see it would be, you know, I don't know what Netflix plans to do with all these DVDs, but it would be amazing if they did like a used DVD sale, right? Like the biggest one in history. But also I wouldn't be surprised if we end up with, you know, someone doing reissues of stuff that's harder to find on DVD, that's harder to find on streaming. You know, the New York Review of Books actually has something called the New York Review um, Classics Collection, and they do classic children's books that are out of print. You know, I mean, we tend to think of DVD reissues as, you know, I think like a fairly high-end thing, what's getting added to the Criterion Collection, et cetera. But, you know, I wouldn't be surprised if um, we end up with a sort of lower end reissuer that, you know, where someone who thinks that it's important to keep some of this stuff available in physical media. I hope that happens. For a while, there was the Warner Brother archives, which was great. There was basically Blu-ray print on demand. They had a list of movies, you'd pick it in and they would send it to you. And uh, a part of me wishes that we would have more things like that uh, out there. You know, there are lots of studios that have uh, enormous libraries that are just kind of sitting there, not Picking up any cash. But again, it is expensive. Like it's not it doesn't cost zero dollars to make a digital print of a movie. You have to run it through a machine. You have to have somebody checking to make sure the quality is there, making sure everything's synced up, work out you gotta work on color timing. It's a it's a whole thing. So I don't know. Part of me is very kind of nervous about the uh future of some of these older, less popular movies. I think that there are more preservation options now than there used to be, and that that is ultimately going to mean that there will be more preservation. That doesn't mean that everything is going to be easily available. It's just obvious that some things will be difficult to access. At the same time, I I just feel like we now live in a world where there is so much more abundance of of cinema history easily available without leaving your house and for a low cost than when I grew up, you know, and I grew up in the the VHS video store era. And I would just, as a, as somebody who loves movies, I would much rather be a movie fan in 2023 than in 1995, just in terms of access and availability. And that doesn't mean there are no, that, that I have no complaints. That doesn't mean that I I think it's everything's perfect and that nothing, you know, there, there are no issues here, but I do think that this is a, a world in which there's more stuff that's available and more easily available to more people, especially outside of big cities. And this is a big thing. I mean, that, that I think people forget is if you were a cinephile and you lived in, you know, a small town in Kansas in the nineties or, you know, like the, the, there was just so much stuff that you couldn't find or couldn't access unless you had access to a mail order catalog and were buying, you know, foreign copies of, of things. And it's just the world we live in now just offers so much more to, to people who don't live in a megalopolis. Yeah. I think that's probably true. I mean, like the, it, it is better now than it used to be, but I, I do, I do pine for the halcyon days of 2005 to 2010 ish that that period all right uh so what do we think is it a controversy or a non-troversy that uh, netflix is phasing out dvd by mail peter it's a controversy that it still existed Alyssa, it's mildly controversial but not surprising yeah i mean it's it's a non-troversy in the sense that it probably makes more business sense but it is uh still kind of sad all right uh make sure to swing by bulwark plus on friday for a special bonus episode about what it feels like to kind of age out of social media maybe 
see what's going on with Twitter, check in on some other stuff. Uh, but now on to our main event, where we're doing something a little bit different this week. Uh, between our vacations and cinematic calendar, regaining some measure of health, there is a ton of stuff in movie theaters to discuss. There's something for everyone. You got the Super Mario Brothers movie is the biggest hit of the year so far. It's bringing families hungry for movies back to theaters in enormous numbers. You got Evil Dead Rise, which was originally destined for HBO Max, uh, and got a full release from Warner Brothers to entice horror-loving audiences out of the house back into the multiplex. And art house darling A24 is rolling out their most expensive movie ever, the $35 million Bo is Afraid from the hereditary and midsummer director Ari Aster. Um, all of these movies offer up different pleasures for different audiences, so we thought we'd split our talents and check them out for you individually. I actually saw all of them, so I'm, I'm a weirdo here, but uh, I, that, that helps me to facilitate this discussion for you, the movie going public. Alyssa, let's start with you. Is the Super Mario Brothers movie everything you ever could have wanted from a kitty flick, or is it good enough to get by? So... One of the benefits of having missed out on much of the pop culture of the 90s when I was growing up um, in my, you know, poor benighted, uh, like, Amish attic of a childhood. Amish. um, Is that I periodically get to learn in detail about some of these franchises and be just endlessly amused by what they constituted, right? I mean, the fact that there was, like, a substantial hit television show about, like, teenage turtles who somehow subsist entirely on pizza with the cooperation of, like, a lady journalist who runs around in yellow jumpsuits is just the funniest thing I've ever heard of, right? Like, where do they get the money for the pizza? Who orders the pizza for them if they live in sewers, etc.? And Mario, the whole Mario complex of things is sort of like that for me. And so going into this movie, it's like, okay, they're plumbers who also rescue a princess in a toadstool kingdom? Like, why is she a human princess in a kingdom full of sentient toadstools? These are among the many important questions answered by the Super Mario Brothers movie. And so one of the things that's very interesting about the Super Mario Brothers movie is that it operates by the same logic of a story told by, like, a smart four- or five-year-old, right? In the sense that There are, you know, weird bridges where characters say obvious things like, you know, like Toad declaring it's like, and now we're off on an adventure together. There are times when events happen, not because there's any sort of organic logic in the movie, but because, you know, the plot such as it's set up sort of needs them to happen, right? I mean, if Princess Peach really believes that there's like an imminent danger to her country that needs to be saved by an emissary to the Kongs, why she stops that emissary and spends like 12 hours training an obviously incompetent Mario to, you know, do various Marioing things, like makes no sense in the context of the movie, but like the franchise requires Mario and Princess Peach to go on an adventure together. And so the movie delivers. But there's a difference between... uh, a movie or any kind of story operating by a fundamentally childlike logic with those same sort of gaps in, you know, naturalistic writing or the same sort of flaws of logic because, you know, the teller's demands need that. And something being a story that's like really good for kids, right? And so, you know, it was sort of amusing watching this as a trifle that bear that's like, oh, so this is what I was missing or not missing the entire time. Um 
I have to say, like, Mario Go-Karts things, whatever that is. Mario Kart, that's a game that exists. Mario Uh, Kart. Oh, that looks kind of fun. Like, maybe I would have enjoyed playing that if we're not terrible at video games. But I don't think this is a particularly strong kids movie. Um, You know, I I don't think the characters are particularly well-developed. Like, oh, my dad doesn't respect my ambitions to either be a plumber or, like, an arena fighting monkey. Um, Like, that's much more of, like, a sort of an adult emotional narrative. Yeah, we'll come back to that on Bo is Afraid. We'll- yeah. Um, Princess Peach is like, you know, child who got like mysteriously sucked into Toad's Duel Kingdom. Like none of these characters are really people and none of them are really children um, in a way. Like it is a, this is a an adaptation of a pop culture artifact that children played and it is childlike in its logic, but it's not really a movie sort of about or for children. It's like so obviously sort of a nostalgia play that obviously went over my head in part because I don't have nostalgia for it, right? But I don't think it's particularly, you know, artful. I don't think it looks particularly great. That said, at my, you know, Friday weekday screening during school break in D.C., there are a ton of families there with kids. And so, you know, this for me is a movie that exemplifies the ways in which like I'm just going to be unable to connect to certain things because I miss them at a certain point in time. But it's also a good reminder that just because not all pop culture is for adults doesn't mean that all pop culture for kids has to be mediocre or that by virtue of being for children, it must therefore be mediocre. Um, I think kids probably deserve a little bit better, um, as do people who have nostalgia for Mario. I think all that is is probably true, and I don't think this is a very good movie. Uh, just on, it, it, It's definitely a movie that relies very heavily on musical cues, for instance, that have nothing to do with Mario Brothers. It's just like, here's some pop songs from the 1980s and 1990s. It's also an interesting measure of where we are in the nostalgia cycle that when Holding Out for a Hero comes in in the Super Mario Brothers movie, the nostalgia effect that it conjures up is actually like the first Shrek movie, right? It's like a whole previous era of kids entertainment when that movie was itself like sort of pulling in an old song from a previous cycle. So what I'm saying is that we're old. It really is. It's a it's a remarkably interesting cultural artifact just for all of the nostalgia at play here and the, and the different ways that it, it kind of refracts off itself. Like I took my four-year-old to see it and he was he was wrapped just a wrapped attention uh on the on the big screen he was a little bit worried about the scary bowser he didn't like scary bowser but then bowser turned out to be kind of funny so it wasn't it wasn't as big a deal for him does bowser want to marry princess peach in the game well, he she, he kidnaps Princess Peach and takes her to the castle to marry her. I believe that is like the, that's why our princess is in another castle. I'm pretty sure that's that's the the basis there. I don't know. I haven't played Super Mario. Brothers I don't recall the marriage aspect being in the games. I recall him just kidnapping her because he's bad. That also could have been it. Frankly, I don't I don't remember. I did think it was very funny that they basically made Bowser an angry incel. And they made uh, Princess Peach uh, a noble white savior, which I thought was was kind of fascinating. Like, just this, this like, white girl shows up in the Toadstool Kingdom. They're like, you're our queen now. Yeah. Also, like, you show up in our kingdom as, like, a pacifier-sucking toddler, and we're going to, like, train you up for, like, 18 years so you can be our queen. And, like, they have to do this, though, yeah. because they're all such cowards, except for Toad, the sidekick character. The, all the rest of the Toadstools just don't—they they don't have it in them to fight. They need to—they finally have a human, the most dangerous species— on their side so they they train 
for Rob. Okay. Uh, all right. Well, we'll do Evil Dead Rise next uh, because that came second in the box office this week for among other reasons. This is the second effort to reboot the Evil Dead series, uh, though there's some question as to whether or not this film and the 2013 effort uh, led by Fede Alvarez are remakes or reboots or sequels or something else entirely. I have a, a tremendous soft spot for Sam Raimi's first three Evil Dead movies, uh, The Evil Dead, Evil Dead 2, and Army of Darkness. I may have talked about this on the show before, but I've owned all of these on like four now modes of home video. I love them. I, I think they're great. And I, I love them in part because they're doing something very interesting and tricky with tone, kind of like melding horror and humor into a Looney Tunes-esque Scarathon gore fest, right? There's lots of comic gore. There's lots of silly action. It's a good time. Uh, and in those first three movies, it's anchored by Bruce Campbell, who's playing the put upon hero Ash. The whole reason these movies work is because we just kind of like hanging out with that squared chinned goofus while he gets put through his paces by the deadites, the evil, evil deadites. Uh, and I think the two more recent cinematic entries have kind of made a mistake in trying to get us to care about the people who become possessed by the evil dead and then turn into the zombie-like deadites. Uh, I think both Alvarez in 2013 and Evil Dead Rise writer-director Lee Cronin succumbed to this kind of modern desire to make all horror movies about the trauma of modernity, right? In the 2013 movie, it's drug addiction. That's the real horror, not not the evil day. It's drug addiction. Here, it's divorce and single motherhood that's the real horror. You know, nobody wants to get divorced or be, be a single mom. Um, but trying to get us to care about the suffering of these folks renders the comic gore, like, too mean-spirited, weirdly, and not in a funny way like you want. Like, it's one thing to torture folks on screen that you don't care about, but imagine giving Wiley Coyote, like, a mortgage that he's four months behind on, and then and then he sits there and he tells his baby coyote pups that they're going to starve to death if he can't bring home a tasty Roadrunner to eat, and then just running him into a cliff at full speed over and over again, or sending him off uh, and getting blown up. I mean, like, that's kind of me. That's kind of messed up. That's a little bit messed up. Still, I enjoyed this movie. I did. I'm, I, I've been nitpicking it a lot in in my review and and just discussing it but i i still actually kind of really liked evil dead rise it's absurd it's over the top um Alyssa sutherland de delivers this like kind of key demented performance as the possessed mother who turns bad um and there's also an interesting moment uh, just politically there's this very interesting moment the deadites discover uh one of the characters in the movie is pregnant and then they say that consuming her flesh would involve eating two souls, meaning that life begins at conception in the Evil Dead universe. Who knew Evil Dead Rise would be the pro-life hit of the summer? Peter, are you considering checking out Evil Dead Rise? Is that is that on your radar? I definitely am planning to. I just haven't had time to see it yet. I'm a, no, I'm a big uh, Evil Dead fan. Um, or I should say, I really love the times when I have seen those movies, but it's, they, uh, they are not movies that I've gone back to and watched uh, a lot of times. But I was a big Evil Dead fan in college for obvious reasons. It's just like a great late night dorm movie. Uh, but also, I may have said this on this podcast before, but the single greatest screening of a movie, not the best movie I've ever seen, but the best overall experience of watching a movie that I have ever had in my life was at a midnight showing of Evil Dead 2 at the Kentucky Theater in downtown Lexington, Kentucky. It's this old state theater, this sort of kind of giant art deco thing. Um, right, and like they just would host midnight screenings of, of cult films, you know, mostly for college kids who would attend. And this one started like an hour late, right? So it's starting at one in the morning. And this screening was just 
absolutely loud and raucous and sort of, you know, there obviously a lot of the people there were drunk or something else. I was not, to be clear. But like just everybody sort of shouting at the screen but like and saying lines. And yet it wasn't obnoxious at all. Every single person in the theater was operating on exactly the same sort of hyped up zany vibe and just completely communing with the movie and its intent in a way that I've never fully felt before. And uh, it had never fully felt and have not quite felt since even, you know, sort of big fan screenings, Star Wars, stuff like that. And it was just just a perfect night at the movies, despite starting an hour late and keeping me up until, you know, three in the morning or something. And I will I doubt any screening of anything will ever surpass that in terms of sheer like crowd communal joy. Alyssa, is there any possible way you would ever consider going to see Evil Dead Rise? If is that a thing that would even be on your radar anywhere in the in the known I'm trying universe? Trying to think how much you would have to pay me to do it. The answer is probably a fair bit. Okay. I could bet, you know what, for you two I could be persuaded. If you know if the if for you two, I could be persuaded, but you'd have to make the case. I feel like you would like Evil Dead Two, or maybe even Army of Darkness, more than uh, more than uh, this movie, because those are those are very like cartoony. It's like cartoony gore. It's not really gore gore, like fountains of blood, that sort of thing. Not really, you know. It's not like torture porn. Looney Tunes is right, but also of, of self awareness, and it's. Certainly trying to shock you, but it's not trying to upset you in a traditional sense. And maybe it is trying to upset you a little bit. Like, it's not trying to make you, it's not trying to punish you, which might be a good segue to our next movie. <laughs> Speaking of punishments, Bella was afraid. So I just want to read a text message that uh, Peter Suderman sent to me at 6.38 this morning, Central Time, 6.38 Central Time. It's just a line from a story with a link. Quote, costing a reported $35 million, Bo is Afraid marks A24's priciest movie to date, partly because Astor requested the funds needed to commission an animatronic penis monster. End quote. <laughs> I'm sorry, Peter. Uh, what? What was that? What? I didn't, what? So I have seen Bo is Afraid, and I can confirm that that is accurate. <laughs> and that's all we're going to say about that. No, like that's like that is what this movie is. And it makes exactly as much sense in the context of the movie as in that completely context free quote, because this movie is an endurance test. It is exquisitely excruciating. And so, Sonny, you were saying to me before this podcast that you thought not only was it too long, but like every single scene itself was too long. But I think that was that's kind of the point. The, this movie would not have the same effect if it weren't obnoxiously too long, if it were not drawing out absolutely every bit to the point where it was upsetting, where it was boring, where it was like made you feel irritable and anxious and weird yourself. It's just absurd and bleak. And like I said, there's there's so little context to this. You don't know if what you are seeing is a dream, if it is the paranoid schizophrenic visions of the character, if it is maybe some sort of representation of real life in a surreal world that often resembles ours, but doesn't operate according to the same rules. You know, it is it, it's a, just a flat out bizarre movie. 
a vision of what it is like to be a paranoid, deeply anxious, possibly totally insane person in a cruel and incomprehensible world. Uh, and it is difficult to watch, difficult to the point of pain, to the point where I nearly texted you guys, I cannot do this, I am walking out about 40 minutes into the movie. And I, I was like, nope. This is I don't do that like for like I, I think that's actually professionally irresponsible unless you morally object to a film like in, in which case it is OK. Even then. maybe. Right. And then no, you have to then. even then, then you, you stick like, with it. I, I, You're a professional. You do your job that, that it is an unprofessional behavior to walk out of a movie or, you know, and then make it all about like, oh, I just couldn't watch this. It was too. But like I came really close really really close in this and so in some ways like i agree with the critics who are like this movie is a mess it's unwatchable it's unbearable but i also think that's kind of the point i, I like ari aster is a smart guy and i think he wanted to make a movie that was unbearable i think he wanted to make a movie that dared people and even critics who who like the same movies that he does who like his movies who have this who share his taste in films i think he wanted to make a movie that was a dare to them to say can you actually finish this will you stick with me i'm going to make it difficult for you i'm going to make it unpleasant and i'm going to make it so that this is not an enjoyable cinematic experience. And in a way, you know, I, I kind of have to respect that. It is just incredibly, uh, maybe not to go back to our monster, but ballsy, right? It's ballsy for a guy with a lot of cachet in Hollywood who is a young, hot, up-and-coming filmmaker to take that cachet and say, I'm going to use this to make maybe the single most difficult movie I I don't know. Like, again, like I, I like weird, bizarre films and a lot of the reference points that you you might think of with a movie like this. I'm a big fan of, of David Lynch's 90s work, you know, Mulholland Drive, um, Inland Empire, uh, uh, Lost Highway, that sort of thing. I love those movies and I love the incomprehensibility of them, the dreamscapes that he is conjuring. The Charlie Kaufman, uh, another Synecdoche, uh, New York in particular, is a, this is probably the movie that this feels most like. And I really liked Synecdoche. I don't think it's Kaufman's best work, but it, I, I think it's an absolutely fascinating movie. And then you think, of, you know, stuff like Fellini, the discreet charm of the, uh, you know, bourgeois, uh, that, that sort of thing. Like all of this kind of surrealist, you know, stuff that he's drawing from. I like all of that. And yet even still, I was I just was sitting there thinking, like, should I be mad at Ari Aster for making this, for making me watch this? Should I be mad at Sonny for making me watch this? Like, <laughs> yes. And and then I and then in some ways I thought, you know what? Like, I don't love this movie. I'm not sure it even totally works on its own terms. But I'm I still kind of am. I'm glad that he made it and I'm glad that he is willing to take not just risks, but like that he is that he's like embracing failure in some sense with a movie like this, because now there's now he's shown he can do it. And there's like something freeing about that. I don't know. It's a it's a it's a bizarre movie. It's not really meant to be enjoyed, but there is much to appreciate it, about it, because in many moments, not maybe as a whole, but in many moments, there are real demonstrations of his abilities as a craftsman. And I, and at, at a certain point, I just sort of settled into watching what he was doing as a filmmaker rather than watching the movie itself. And I found myself thinking, Gosh, man. This guy really can direct, right? And like, there are just shots here that I I just sort of lingered over and was like, oh my, like I'm not sure I've ever seen anything quite like that, except maybe in a previous Ari Aster film. And I'm glad those movies exist, even if in this case I also find myself very frustrated, even to the point of anger. 
with it. It's a bad movie. Um, <laughs> it's, it's a bad movie uh, on uh, f- almost every level. Like even even on the performance level, I, I don't like what Joaquin Phoenix is really doing here. Um, what I said to Peter was that every individual shot could be half as long and you don't lose anything. You don't even have to cut the discursive sub- subplots, even though you could. You could get rid of a lot of stuff in this movie, but you don't have to. If you just made every single shot 50% shorter, the thing would come in at a much more reasonable, you know, close to two-hour running time, probably. You wouldn't even have to cut a full 50%. Cut cut 30 40%. But, man, this is a, this is a, this movie defines wank. It's a wank. Uh, it is a, it's a total self-involved, self-indulgent pile of mess. Like I, I am kind of with Peter in the sense that I'm glad that it exists because I like I like the idea of filmmakers getting to make massively personal things. Um, and I like to for those things to be in theaters. But I also am like there are things I don't understand about A24. And one of the things I don't understand about A24 is how Under the Silver Lake, which is a genuine masterpiece in the mold that Peter was talking about earlier, the Lynchian kind of neo-noirish type. Uh, I don't understand how that movie gets dumped to DirecTV and abandoned and and left to rot without uh, like anything approaching a proper DVD or Blu-ray or 4K release. Uh, and this movie gets like the full, it's probably going to end up on 2,000 screens next week. I bet they expand it again because it's in the contract. And it's it's bad and audiences hate it and it's going to die. So I don't know. I mean, it's not a very good movie, even if it's one I'm kind of glad exists for the same reasons Peter is. I think. Um, isn't this something he's been working on for like 10 years, you know, pre-hereditary? It's like his. There's a short. Yeah, so he, there's a short film. Um, he also wrote the script before hereditary. And so and, and an yeah. early version of the script had a somewhat different and more oblique ending also set in the water. But like I've read, uh, pe- I've read reports by people who have read the initial script, and then he also made a short film as part of a series of short films that led to him making his first feature, Hereditary, and one of them was Bo. That short has apparently recently disappeared from the internet for not surprising reasons. Disappeared forever. We got to get it on DVD. Yeah. Get it back out there, so uh, so they can't take it away from us. If you can't hold it in your hands, you don't own it. No, I like Astor's uh, Hereditary. I was more mixed on Midsummer, which again I thought was a, a little a little bit of a self indulgent mess, but still had its moments. I think this is this movie is an artistic disaster on v- virtually every level. I just I, it does not it does not work. But I'll say that if you are the sort of person who likes a difficult movie and who likes a challenge, who likes David Lynch and Charlie Kaufman and you know the sort of uh, mid century surrealist filmmakers. Consider seeing this movie and consider seeing it in with uh, one bit of context in mind, which is that Astor has talked about when he was pitching his first feature, Hereditary, which, of course, is, you know, this sort of quite dark psychological horror film with like uh, witches and stuff like that. Um, And he has talked about how when he was in the process of pitching his first feature, he wanted to make something that was just a domestic family drama. And he didn't get any takers. And when he repackaged a lot of his ideas into a horror format, he found that people were much more interested in making the movie. And I think that helps explain a bunch of what is in Bo is Afraid and why when he got the opportunity to take a big swing, this is the movie he made. Sometimes big swings are big misses. Got a lot of strikeouts in the Major League Baseball these days. All right. uh, That's it for this episode. We can't really thumbs up and thumbs down everything. I will give the definitive ranking, though, however. It's Evil Dead Rise uh, is better than Super Mario Brothers movie. 
which is better than Bo is Afraid. The Super Mario Brothers movie is somehow better than the Art House A24 movie. I don't know. I can't explain it, It's but it's it's math. All right. Uh, that is it for this week's show. Make sure to head over to Bulwark Plus for our bonus episode on Friday. Uh, buy tickets to the live show. It's Tuesday, May 16th at the Crystal City Draft House. They're going fast. Buy them up. Tell your friends. Strong recommendation from friend is basically the only way to grow podcast audiences. If we don't grow, we'll die. If you did not love today's episode, please complain to me on Twitter at Sunny Bunch. I'll convince you that it is, in fact, the best show in your podcast feed. See you guys next week. Mm-hmm.